Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In London today, climate activists blockaded the London Stock Exchange by gluing themselves across the entrances. Others glued themselves together on Fleet Street outside the Goldman Sachs Bank headquarters. 1,130 people have been arrested since the Extinction Rebellion protests began on April 15th in London. Some observers there are impressed with what the protests have achieved. The Guardian says words like extinction, rebellion, crisis, and breakdown are now part of everyday conversation. But perhaps what's more, more importantly what's changed is what's politically realistic. But Britain's energy minister, Claire Perry, rejected the Extinction Rebellion demand for declaring a climate emergency, saying, I don't know what that would entail. We're living in an age where putting people in the street for a protest is easy, but making a difference is hard. George Lackey has some advice for people who want to move the needle with direct action campaigns. The veteran campaigner's book is How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. I've talked with George previously about his book Viking Economics, about how the Nordic countries became the Nordic countries, and that may come up in conversation. Good to see you, George Lackey. Good to see you again, Jim. Um, tell us a little about yourself and your history with nonviolent campaigning, because if, when you total it up, you seem to have been involved in everything since the civil rights movement, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Not quite everything, but it is true that I've tried to be involved in many of the issues as they come along. And it's been very exciting because I've learned something from every single one. The civil rights movement was probably the most formative for me. That's where I was first arrested. That's where I first learned about training, the value of training to support people to be as brave as we sometimes need to be. So, Where would you get arrested? Uh, I was arrested in Chester, Pennsylvania, which is an industrial city in near Philadelphia. And it was a, one of those mass campaigns, you know, where people were occupying this, occupying that, sitting in, and and uh, that's where I was first arrested. And it was very scary and and uh, and very successful, in fact, because the arresting officers ended up uh, went, losing their case, and I uh, I succeeded in going free. But after a week of extraordinary jail experience with so many comrades who taught me a lot about how to be a movement soldier. Uh, where, where else did you go after the civil rights movement? There, you, I know you got involved in LGBTQ movements and things of that nature. That's right. And also uh, the men's uh, response to the women's movement because that was going on in the 70s as well very very strongly. That was really important. The environmental movement was very important in terms of the uh, anti-nukes struggle. And also I led a campaign to save a whole lot of trees that were about to be cut down. And uh, that was a neighborhood revolt. So I've been lucky. Did you get arrested for that? Yeah. Okay. So we, I've been uh, lucky to be involved in neighborhood level ac actions and, and citywide and state actions and even in, on an international level, even involving the Puerto Ricans. We were in solidarity with Puerto Ricans who were saying the U.S. Navy should not be bombing inhabited islands of ours for target practice. <laughs> so we were we were in unity with that and we helped them to win their, their struggle. I was reading in How We Win about you, how you tra chain, uh, trained Burmese people to to stand up against the Burmese military. That's true. That's true as well. Right. Because I, I realized, well, we have a lot to learn from other lands, but also sometimes our presence as Americans, just because of the privileged place that the U.S. occupies in the world system, uh, can be helpful for local people. And so I've been willing to show up in some situations like that. Well, let's get down to it and talk about what's going on with protests now. 
Uh, there are, you know, I mentioned in the lead, it's easy to put a lot of people in the streets now. We see a lot of people protesting all sorts of things, and a lot of times it doesn't amount to much. What What is going on there? A lot depends on whether, first of all, you have a specific concrete goal that is winnable in principle. It might take a while. It might take a few years to win or it might take many years to win. Uh, on the other hand, it might be a matter of months until you win. But the important thing about winning, at least in some political contexts where people are discouraged and it's despairing, I, I run into a lot in our country, in the United States, I run into a lot of people who are in some discouragement and despair. They need wins in order to develop the self-confidence and the skills to be able to make even bigger wins in the future. And so choosing things that are winnable uh, and, and concrete, I mean, that's a problem with extension rebellion, I think, is they're not very willing to do that. They're, they're willing to make these big, wonderful sort of sloganizing cries, but not necessarily zero in. And I'm finding that zeroing in, especially in situations of high polarization, which Britain experiences because of Brexit and we experience as well, uh, can be really, really valuable. I was reading in the book about Martin Luther King, who campaigned once to end segregation in a town. I think it was Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And um, he could not end segregation in that town in his, in his protests. Uh, but when they went to lunch counters and started doing things that were more specific, then they can – and segregation. That's right. In Albany, he lost. And that was a very bruising uh, battle for him and Southern Christian Leaders Conference and SNCC, which was the ones who actually started that. And he did learn a lot from it, which I relate in my book, because uh, what he learned was the more specific, the better. And then uh, the thing about part, part of what gives you the advantage in choosing something specific is that you can then identify who your target is, P target meaning the deciders, the ones who can actually yield what it is you're demanding, right? But then once you know who the deciders are, then you can analyze, well, what are the point, points of vulnerability in the deciders? Like, what are the ways that you can be persuasive with them? So it's not just a kind of splat kind of you know thing, which, which brings drama. And drama, I'm very for drama. But if it's drama that's just in the way of splat instead of, in, instead of more accurately going after places that will be felt by the opponent to be so crucial that they will yield rather than uh, you know rather than hold on that is where dr king found the victories were at hand and he went from albany to birmingham alabama and that's where he was able to force john kennedy after all and the democratic establishment in in washington which at that time was a democratic establishment uh, he was able to force them to yield a civil Rights Act. I'm talking with George Lakey. We're discussing his book, How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. You talk in the book about some students of yours that um, from Swarthmore College and the experience they had doing just this kind of thing, worming towards who do we focus on and what do we do. And they had a kind of unlikely um, uh, scenario. They were trying to stop a mountaintop coal mining, and they they uh, explain what happened there and how they did that. Well, that was remarkable because uh, we we were aware that there were mountains being blown up. In fact, five hundred mountains had been blown up by the time uh, I took Swarthmore students down there to watch and to to, to see what the mountains once leveled looked like. It was 
Oh, Jerome, it was a, it was a lo- lunar landscape. It was just in- incredibly sad. There were students crying. It was just a really sad thing to watch, and, uh, to see, and also to then talk with the people. Twice the cancer rates in those areas, birth defect rates up and so on. And we came back to the primary financer of mountaintop removal in Appalachia, which was PNC Bank which is very strong in our area. I'm from Philadelphia. It's, it's part of the part of the PNC Bank actually originated in Philadelphia. And we wanted to the PNC Bank to wake up to their responsibility to stop financing a practice that was killing people and hurting nature and promoting climate change. And so they um they they did, but so reluctantly that we needed to do 125 actions. <laughs> we had to grow to 13 against states. PNC Bank. Yeah, against PNC Bank. 125 actions. We had to move to a 13-state network to be able to do that. So this was kind of an unlikely thing. I mean, the, the, the people who were on the mountaintops and fighting this, they needed you as allies exactly. in this thing. Exactly. They needed people out there where PNC banks were. And right. Like and we were... We could find people and, you know, people being willing to be allies all over the place, including Chicago, of course. <laughs> uh, that's an amazing story. So um, how do we apply that to, to some of the – I want to talk more about Extinction Rebellion and what they're doing. Um, they, they did, you know, obviously some very splashy things today in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And their demands – and they seem to be a very hard-thinking group – um, they've got their uh, three demands. They want people to declare a climate crisis. Um, you think that uh, – I mean the, the environment minister of Britain dismissed that, just said I don't know what that means. It's, a, it's just a phrase really. I mean it doesn't amount to a concrete change that you can take credit for. And that's what we need. We need a movement that builds such a sense of coherence in the public that is – there's always a lot of people in the public that are of two minds. You know, well, maybe these protesters are right. And then on the other hand, maybe the government is right. And they're willing to give the government very often a benefit of the doubt. And so the more clearly you can express what it is you want the government to do, the the more likely you are to get that result. So they want net zero greenhouse gas emissions in Britain by 2025. That's that very is clear. much more clear. That that it's very I, fast. I, yes, but it's very it's, clear. It's too fast. But anyway, it's very clear. Yeah, and and it joins a movement that's going on in Europe in multiple countries to declare a date certain by which uh, they'll achieve carbon neutrality. The Scandinavian countries have all lined up for that, and others are discussing it. So that puts Britain on a trajectory that you know is is a bigger picture, and and it's possible to hold people responsible for that. And they also have this demand for a citizens assembly that would help spur that movement to to get greenhouse gas emissions down by 2025. Yes. Well, that that may in the British context make sense because the parliament is in such trouble in terms of its own legitimacy, right? The Brexit mess has revealed a parliament that can't make up its mind. And that's going on and on. And it's a source of enormous suffering, my friends in Britain tell me. And so it may be actually strategically wise to say, well, since parliament seems to be unable to lead us anymore, how about a citizens' assembly that may be doing a better – might do a better job depending on how the assembly is is chosen. And what that fa- they found in Iceland when there was a similar demand for a citizens' assembly to, re- to take over a responsibility that the parliament wasn't doing well on. 
on was the apartment then stepped up and acted like yeah. <laughs> acted like a proper you know because it was it was embarrassed being challenged it exactly was being it was challenged. being challenged yes so uh, the, uh, essentially <laughs> that sounds like a wacky demand but it sounds but it has some pretty it good might ideas have behind some it worth, yes right, right. Um, all right. right. Very interesting. I'm talking with George Lackey about his book, How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. And I, I wanted to go back to something. You mentioned how many actions it took you to get PNC Bank to back off of the hilltop uh, coal mining, and it's 120-some. Uh, and you mentioned in the book Alice Paul, uh, who got the right for women to vote in this country, and she led a campaign on the White House <laughs> I had to go back and look, and you interviewed her. I interviewed her, yes. And she and I, I was amazed that it was eighteen months. Yes. I, for eighteen months, these women were at the White House all Incredible. the time. Incredible during World War One, when things were so catastrophic. Yes, I interviewed her in the sixties. You know, when she was quite elderly, but very, very, uh, very strong mind. And it was, in fact, writing this book. I mean, this is my tenth book, Jerome, and this was one of the most favorite books of mine to write because I went back a century to look at American examples of brilliant moves on the part of people's movements. And I was able to just, you know, it was like going to a tree full of luscious fruit. And, oh, well, you take this one, we'll take this one, they'll take this one. And that was one of the most delicious ones, partly because it's so so ill-known. I mean, we, we assume that women have the right to vote. We have no idea, most of us, how hard it was for women to get the right to vote. And so I tell that story in the book because it was such a thrilling and inspiring story. And they were hassled. The, oh, they were mobbed. They were beaten up. They were beaten up because no one had picketed the White House before the women did. And their women were, and in the eyes of a number of the men who were walking by, it was almost like uh, defacing a sacred place. You know, the White House was regarded as a sacred place. And there were women picketing it. And the, the, they were beating up women who the police would then go around the corner so they didn't see to let the men beat up the women more severely. And Amazing. then the police would come around and arrest the women and take them off to jail where the women then began to hunger strike <laughs> were, in order to escalate. They were hardcore. They, they, they were to totally hard. And they had to be because they were, they were up against the patriarchy. Let's face They've it. They've been trying 50 years. And well, yes. And the patriarchy as an institution had been around for 10,000, right, or longer. So they were really, really uh, up against it. And the important thing to realize is that they won in the, during World War I when President Woodrow Wilson kept saying, well, first of all, uh, this isn't an important thing. And then they said, well, OK, so it's important. We'll take it up after the war because the war is the primary thing. Let's win the yeah. war and then we'll do it. And they forced him to address the question and to come out on their side during World War I because they kept challenging his hypocrisy. And they said, if President Wilson, you believe in democracy enough to send untold numbers of young men to Europe to die for democracy, then how about really having democracy in our own country? Not a bad argument. And it's a, such a lesson in uh, campaigning it, and the, how long you have to campaign. You can't just go to a protest on a Sunday afternoon and, and hope you, you did your thing. I wish. <laughs> the opponent, of course, knows when we go to a one-off protest and then we're going home at the end of the day, well, that's not a problem. The opponent, whoever it is, a governmental official or a, or a bank or whatever, knows, well, we go back to work tomorrow and we continue our policies because we're not going home. 
unlike those protesters. And that's why the campaigns that win are the campaigns that do sustained and escalated struggle. I'm talking with George Lakey about his book, How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. George is going to be at several events. He's going to be at Women and Children's First Bookstore tonight in Andersonville. Then he is going to be at the 57th Street Bookstore on Saturday night at 6 p.m. He's also doing a three-hour training with NES on Saturday as well. And you could get more information about that at the NES website, a full half a day with George Lakey. And I wanted to invite some people to take part in the conversation with us. Uh, The number to call is 312-923-9239. Join us and talk about direct action campaigning and what's going on. 312-923-9239. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm talking with George Lakey about his book, How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. And we're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. Um, before the uh, break, we were talking a bit about your the group you had at Swarthmore College and what they were doing with PNC Bank, and they were trying to stop hilltop uh, coal explosions um, what, what kind of things are they doing now? Well, those students that actually uh, were in coalition with a group of Quakers from the general Philadelphia area, which then extended in multiple states. And that group, which we call Earth Quaker Action Team, was, as, as we said, successful with regard to winning PNC's bank's willingness to give up financing mountaintop removal, coal mining. And so, wow having a success. Let's go on to the next campaign. So the next campaign actually reaches all the way to Chicago through uh, Exelon because it turns out that Exelon is a mega corporation based here in Chicago, owns the electrical utility in the Philadelphia area, which is called Pico there. And uh, that utility has been very, very reluctant to use solar and wind, very reluctant to do renewables. Only 1% of their energy pie includes uh, renewables. And the great affection they have for fossil fuels <laughs> and also for nuclear. And so we are saying, no, look, you've got to get ready for the 21st century. You say you're a leader. Well, be leaders about climate change. And therefore, we want you to solarize the neighborhoods in Philadelphia that are high unemployment neighborhoods that need jobs, right? So create green jobs by putting solar panels on rooftops and also, at the same time, uh, you will be um, you'll be so you'll be increasing the wealth the wealth and dealing with the poverty issue for Philadelphians that most need it. But also, you'd be addressing climate change at the same time. And also, there's really a, a racial justice dimension here because the high unemployment areas in Philadelphia are also the areas where people of color live. So you could be doing th- triple 
tri- you know, triple advantages really. You'd be dealing with climate and with economic justice and with racial justice all at the same time. What's not to like here? So we've been saying that for three years and we've been using a direct action campaign. I've been arrested in this campaign for sitting it, uh, you know, blocking the doorway. We've been doing multiple actions there and they have been uh, – they've responded in a certain way by creating a solar uh, collaborative to bring in a lot of uh, nonprofits and so on to give them advice. But they haven't been taking the advice because they've been very busy continuing to do what we suspect is not really – uh, in our interest, we know it's not in our interest, but we think it's really being uh, wagged. Their tail has been being wagged by Exelon, and so we're we're more and more interested in that connection. All right, very interesting, and uh, we'll take a few phone calls here. The number to call three one two. Nine two three nine two three nine. I also, I think I misspoke about where you're doing the three-hour training. It is at N-E-I-S, N-E-I-S dot org. And let's go to Tom. You're on WBEZ. Uh, Ralph, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Um, good show. Just a quick question. Um, you know, I grew up as a staunch liberal. I still am. But, you know, part of the reason I feel like a lot of times um, I see the left losing is the policy now, when I see in a lot of college campuses, when there's someone who disagrees and they come to the campus, they are shut down with free speech. And this is a big problem. And what I see is, unfortunately, losing um, losing in the arena of open discourse and ideas Ideas have to be defeated with ideas, not being shut down in terms of just um, someone's opinion who I don't agree with, but I will listen to them talk and then argue with them rationally. All right. Why do you uh, see on so many college campuses occurring today? And George, you've worked on a college campus for an extended period of time yourself. Yes, indeed. And I was one of those standing up for free speech there as well. And I was disagreeing with students, including some of my students, who were much more inclined to try to shut up, you know, not give a platform to views we don't agree with. And I was saying, oh, no, 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 that even shows weakness. That suggests we don't have strong arguments. Let's invite Let's invite the people we strengthen. So, matter know how with. how hateful they are. No matter how hateful they are, I'm I'm happy to debate a Nazi any day of the week because I have such confidence in my ideas, and I think I can show why the Nazi is wrong. All right, and now you do talk a lot about polarization and how it's having an effect on uh, campaigning and have, being right. successful in campaigning because. Uh, there's, we've got two sides of the coin here and they're hard as rocks. Well, Jerome, I have really turned my uh, attitude around on polarization because 10 years ago, I assumed polarization gets in the way of social change. I figured, well, if everybody's screaming at each other and nobody's listening, then how do we make progress, right? And that was my attitude 10 years ago. And then when I wrote my book, Viking Economics, which you've uh, interviewed me on before, I, that meant studying in depth the, uh, the Nor- Norwegian, Swedes, Danes, Icelanders, looking at how they turned their societies around. I found out that they changed they made their enormous changes from the wrecks that they were a hundred years ago to top of the line today be, through uh, periods when they were the most highly polarized. So I thought, whoa, polarization doesn't stop progress. In fact, it can actually abet progress. And then I looked at the 1930s in the United States, whoa, big polarization, yeah. big progress. 1960s, big polarization, 
big progress. Okay, we've got polarization. Let's get over our anguish about that. Let's go ahead and make the progress that's available here. Let's go to Gail. You're on WBEZ. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just started a campaign called Rename Mitchell Park in Deerfield, Illinois. And I don't know if you remember the national story in 1959 where someone was trying to build affordable housing in Deerfield and the land got condemned after two houses were built and turned into national parks or turned into parks. And we still have these parks today, and they're named after the guy who ran the park district at the time. And my village can't heal from this awful experience. And so there's a a new campaign to rename these parks. My my question is, is it important to uh, insult Mr. Mitchell, who's no longer alive, or is it better to just kind of, you know, say that we re- need to rename it for the whole concept. Like, I don't know how hardcore to get. Very interesting question. Uh, how hardcore should she get, George? So much has to do with, uh, with the, the message behind the message, uh, the, or the message behind your goal. Your goal is a renaming, but there's a reason for that. There's something positive that you want to to uh, to to do uh, as a result of that, I'm sure. And uh, so the nature of that positivity needs to be expressed in order for you, I think, to be uh, maybe in order for you to win, but certainly for you to feel good about winning. And so I would look to what is behind uh, what you're, what, what's, the, what's the way that Deerfield, you said healing. So what's the way that Deerfield will be a finer community by virtue of that renaming. And I would name the campaign uh, in, in the context of that thing. For example, our current campaign we call Power Local Green Jobs. We're not interested in tearing down the name of Exelon or our local utility. We're interested in power local green jobs because we're going for the positive. And then the disruption that we cause in the course of going for the positive is disruption that people can understand because, oh, well, but they're doing it for a noble cause. All right, very interesting. It's amazing how many renaming things there are to do. And I mean, we've got uh, you know this pillar from Mussolini that's still down uh, in in one of our parks, and we cannot seem to get it out of here. And Bilbao Drive, and you know, Italian Americans rally against this, and uh, it's um, it's it's kind of uh, an amazing thing. We can't have any statues with women. It, it, there's there's a lot of uh, issues around naming and statues and things like that. Well, I personally am not that drawn to these sort of cultural changes. I understand they're very important to some people, but I'm so aware of the poverty that marks uh, large cities in our country and rural areas and the tremendous deprivations that actually reduce the life opportunities of people every day. Seems more and important. It, that seems way more important to me. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with George Lakey about his book, How We Win. Bill, you are on WBEZ. Uh, Yes. uh, I was wondering if George had any involvement with the Keystone Pipeline protests of a few years ago and uh, which weren't successful and uh, if he could comment on that. 
Yes, we were the organization that was asked by the the uh, national uh, opposition to K- Keystone, which was 350.org. Uh, we were asked to coordinate the civil disobedience uh, action in Philadelphia, and so we did that. We had a massive action. Many, many more people volunteered to be arrested than could even be arrested by the police. Uh, they they ran out of uh, police power and uh, space in jails and so on to be able to arrest the huge numbers that we were able to assemble for that. It was a highly successful action in Philadelphia. And you remember, it was part of a campaign that actually forced uh, President Obama to turn around and uh, reject uh, his Secretary of State's recommendation that the KXL, KXL be approved because Hillary Clinton was if for KXL. And he rejected that advice finally and said, well, okay, then let's, uh, let's put KXL on hold. So that was a highly successful campaign. But the campaign isn't over, obviously, because uh, Donald Trump wants the KXL. And so we have to amp up that campaign once again. You do talk about how campaigns become movements in the book. And this specific campaign against this one pipeline spawned a bunch of other campaigns against a bunch of other pipelines. It's so inspiring, and that's still the case. Standing Rock, which was also KXL-related, has spurred a number of pipeline campaigns in Pennsylvania, where I'm from, but in other places as well. The pipeline fights together. You're right, Jerome. Together could be called, well, that's the pipeline movement, just as there was the sit-in movement or the, you know, the divestment movement. So we now have that movement. What my book does that nobody else is doing, as far as I know, is how we win this Describes how you put campaigns together in such a way as to have a movement and then how you put movements together in such a way as to have a movement of movements. And when you do that, then you are talking about the scale of change that many of us long for, the possibilities that the United States could actually enter a new era in which justice and equality and peace and climate adaptation could actually occur. That's possible, but that requires a degree of scale that is only, I think, available step by step. And that's what's in the book, How We Win. We've just got about a minute left here, but you do have a few quick paragraphs on what's wrong with the media, and you you do not re- are not going to rely on the media for winning. It sounds like yeah, because the media, of course, per- informs us enormously about how electoral campaigns work, and in fact, we we get a lot of the uh, the game, you know, the the, uh, the race the, horse uh, race. The, the, the horse race is what gets enormous coverage. So my my guess is the average American knows a tremendous lot about electoral campaigning and almost zero about direct action campaigning, even though it's direct action campaigning that accounted for the votes for women and the civil rights movement and multiple reforms. The 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 existence of the weekend, the labor movement delivered the existence of the it's weekend through direct action campaigns. And that's the missing piece in our education that I wish the mass media would cover more frequently. And I appreciate your covering it today. George Lakey is the author of How We Win, A Guide to Nonviolent Direct Action Campaigning. You can see him tonight at the Women and Children First Bookstore in Andersonville. And then on Saturday, he will be at the 57th Street Bookstore at 6 p.m. And there is a training seminar on nonviolent direct action at NEIS on uh, Saturday for several hours. You can go to NEIS.org if you need more information about that. It's good seeing you, George Lakey. Good to see you again, Jerome like your questions. 
Coming up after the break, we'll talk with Amira Haas, the Occupied Territories correspondent for Haaretz. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Amira Haas is the Occupied Territories correspondent for Haaretz. Born in Jerusalem to two Holocaust survivors, Amira Haas is the only Jewish Israeli journalist to live in the Palestinian territories for an extended period of time. Haas moved to Gaza in 1993 and then to Ramallah in 1997. She's the author of Drinking the Sea at Gaza, Days and Nights in a Land Under Siege, and she's also the author of Reporting from Ramallah, an Israeli journalist in an occupied land. Thanks for joining me, Amira Haas. Thank you for inviting me. And you're going to be in the Midwest. You've got a number of appearances. We were just chatting about how tired you're going to be. You've got about seven or eight appearances starting on April 28th until May 9th. You're at the LaGrange Public Library on May 9th, and you're starting off in Oak Park on uh, Sunday the 28th. You know, you're going to have quite a tour here in the Midwest. Yeah. Tell us a little about yourself. You're in such an unusual position being in the occupied territories for so long. How did you get into journalism? Why did you start? Um, I started by not being uh, good at mathematics or music, because if I were, I guess I would have been uh, something else. But I was good with words, and when I quit the university and realized that I don't want to have an academic career, I looked for a job as my only expertise is with words. I found a very modest uh, copy editing job at Haaretz, but at the same time I was uh, active in the Israeli left wing for many years, during the first intifada by the late 80s. And uh, this activity brought me to Gaza, to the West Bank, and I told my editors that there is no correlation between what I see in Gaza and what is written about Gaza. So slowly, slowly, I started also to propose and to write some things from Gaza and uh, stayed longer and uh, stayed overnight, which looked then even two nights, three nights, at friends that I had made. And uh, What were some of the things that you were seeing in Gaza that you didn't think related to what you were reading in the Israeli press? Look, the image of Gaza was, is and was always as a savage, savage place, and it, it's actually what was not written. So you have a savage place, and then what? And people hate us, or people are uh, just laborers, or just this. And uh, the humor that people have, the stamina, the resilience, um, the warmth, all these things never existed. Not to mention that all the Israeli military actions were not uh, fully fully covered. They were more covered when, when some of the journalists did write about it already back then, especially at Harris, but not only. Uh, but the sense of a very special community, the community of mostly refugees, Palestinian refugees from 1948, the relationship between people... The welcoming warmth that is so typical of Gaza, and I am not able to go anymore to Gaza 
the Israeli authorities do not let us, but people who do go to Gaza always specify this, even in these terrible conditions today, when Gaza has become a, a huge prison, uh, maybe the biggest prison in the world, where two million people cannot move, cannot go out, uh, still people talk about this warmth of Gazans. Um, in spite of also the hunger, the despair, this warmth still exists. And this is what I found when I started going and meeting Gazans more on a, on a regular basis. Uh, this is what I found was missing. But and, of course, uh, I didn't write about the warmth. I mean, I wrote about military policies, uh, Israeli military policies, but I wrote about people. How did you come to be in Ramallah starting in 1997? Why did you go there? Look, I wrote a book. There were some changes in the paper. The correspondent from the West Bank uh, left. And uh, I must say that my editors were sure that the Palestinian state would be soon uh, established. I knew it wouldn't. But they really thought so and that everything is moving uh, to Ramallah. So the center is moving to Ramallah with uh, Arafat. And they suggested I become a correspondent in the West Bank. And it was natural that I would pick up uh, Ramallah and live. Why were you sure that there wouldn't be a Palestinian state? Because there was a lot of optimism about what was going on after the Oslo Accords. Yeah, but living in Gaza made me realize that Israeli policies, I mean, the real policies, is covered by sweet talk of peace and negotiation and uh, coexistence, etc., but in practice, Israel did everything possible to foil the establishment of a Palestinian state the way we saw it back then. A Palestinian state in the borders of 1967, pre-war 67, uh, with Jerusalem, with the connection between Gaza and the West Bank. So all these things, Israel, uh, from the start, actually from the beginning of the 90s, uh, did everything possible in order to foil it. For me, it was clear, especially in Gaza, one of the main conditions for a state, Palestinian state, is the connection between Gaza and the West Bank. And even the Oslo, the Declaration of Principles that was signed by both parties, claimed that both parties recognized that Gaza and the West Bank are one territorial unit. But just then, Israel separated the population of Gaza from the West Bank started all kinds of limitations on freedom of movement, which made it impossible for Gazans to reach the West Bank in a normal way, and started all these policies in a gradual way that today came up to complete this disconnect. But it started very early and long before the suicide attacks. You were one of the first journalists to start using the word apartheid beginning in the early 2000s when it comes to describing the situation. How did that happen, and what kind of reaction did you get initially? I think I even started it much earlier when I wrote the book uh, on Gaza and uh, described the reality of Israeli settlements uh, which enjoy fresh water and clean water while nearby in Palestinian uh, refugee camps and cities and towns, people need to uh, purify, to desalinate their water. And I said even once that, that it had the taste, when I went to a settlement and drank the water there, it had the taste of apartheid. Um, the reaction, you know, people didn't really, what can I say, uh, of course, all these words sounded very hostile or um, because people connect apartheid 
to the racial discrimination or biological racism that existed in South Africa. But apartheid is much more a bureaucratic system where you have a government which is not elected by all the people who live in the country, who live in the same territory, and there are parallel, unequal systems and structures uh, and infrastructures. And this is the reality. And this is the reality not only Gaza, West Bank, vis-a-vis Israel. This is also the reality in Israel itself, where you don't have uh, equal systems and equal uh, laws for Palestinians and Jews. And then you have levels. You have different groups of the other people. We are one Jewish people. But Palestinians are actually subdivided like people in South Africa, like the non-whites were subdivided in, in South Africa. So there are similarities, and there are, of course, many things that are not similar. For example, this biological racism. In Israel, for example, you have hospitals where doctors and patients are both Palestinians and Jews. This could not have happened in, in, this did not happen in South Africa. Uh, you have this mixing of Jews and Palestinians that never existed in South Africa. So we have to be cautious also about the differences. I'm talking with Amira Haas. She's the Occupied Territories correspondent for Haaretz and has been reporting for the Occupied Territories since the 90s. And she's coming to Chicago, appearing a bunch of times through uh, May 9th. And I wanted to ask a few questions about what's happening today in Israel. And we just had the recent elections, and it looks like Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to be able to form a coalition. I know that Bernie Sanders was at an event the other night in television, and he said that he thinks it's a racist administration now. What has happened with Israel's nation-state law and what's going on in Israel these days? I noticed you had a column that called it Scary Israel recently. Yeah. Look, I feel that they will feel much freer to implement policies that are not new. The nation state, of course, on the one hand, exemplified tendencies that existed before, but now it gives it much more um, stamp of legitimacy uh, in the eyes of Israel and the world that accepts it. It does not take any steps against it. So now when he's elected, when Netanyahu is elected the fifth time and the fourth time in a row for premiership, while he's supposed to be indicted very soon for corruption, uh, he feels much more sure of himself to continue with the colonialist policies uh, and to enhance the grab of land that is happening now in the West Bank. Again, it is not new, and it was not only under Netanyahu. Uh, Barak and Sharon and Shimon Peres and Rabin uh, had the same policies, only more modestly. But in their time also, a lot of Palestinian land was grabbed from Palestinians and served for Israeli settlements. Uh, But now the process of colonization is going to get faster. We already see it by certain laws and orders, military orders. Uh, The land which is beyond the separation wall that was built for security reasons, but far away from the border, this land, less and less Palestinians are able to get there to their own land in order to work it as farmers, less and less as we expected. And it is becoming in the consciousness of Israel is part of Israel. So uh, I am personally very much afraid of the growing tendency among right-wing messianic religious groups 
to call for expulsion of Palestinians, mass expulsions of Palestinians to other countries. This is a fear. Uh, this is a possibility that can be prevented, but only if we are aware of it. Uh, with a government, with people, with a very strong settler colonial uh, uh, lobby in the Knesset, in the parliament, very strong uh, settlers' bodies who are all the time chasing Palestinian farmers and, and shepherds from their land. The prospect of mass expulsion without anybody able to stop it uh, is unfortunately realistic. You know, you were talking about the way you knew that the Oslo Accords would fail. Do you have a similar sense about right now what's going on? You fear the expulsion of Palestinians. That would be the next thing, the next phase of this. No, I say it should be prevented, but that's why I'm warning about it. I'm not prophesizing. I don't have a crystal ball where I see the future. I analyze the present and I'm warning about the dangers. I'm talking a lot about it. I don't like to prophesize, but I'm warning about these growing tendencies and the strengthening of these groups that advocate expulsion. They might say, ah, expulsion only of families, of people who, who killed Israelis. You know, they try to define it, but you also hear among many of those uh, Messianic Jewish uh, religious nationalists you hear things like, oh, the Palestinians should thank us that they are here. Things like that. And in practice, you see how day by day, the Israeli, not them, but the Israeli authorities, the Israeli settling authorities, are grabbing more and more land and congesting the Palestinians into more and more populated enclaves. In a way, it is like imitating or emulating the process that happened in Gaza. I wanted to ask a question about the Palestinian Authority, because if there was somebody who was able to stop it, I imagine it would be the Palestinian Authority, the entity that, in theory, is the governing body. What do they look like to you these days? Uh, they cannot stop it. They are so weak, they cannot even guarantee a health a permit for a person to go for health reasons, to live out, or they cannot uh, save those lands that I said beyond the separation wall. They are very weak, um, and unfortunately, part of, or one face of the PA is acting like subcontractors of Israel. I don't think they wanted it. I don't think that they were planning for this, but the reality became that they are a, a limited self-rule in enclaves in the West Bank, uh, when Israel is the, actually, the army is the sovereign all over the place, including those enclaves. And the army has orders, and they have to somehow mediate between the Palestinian people and the army in order to implement those orders or uh, to facilitate or something. And this is a very sad reality. I wanted to ask a question about gender issues and covering the Middle East. I know you're going to be talking at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about personal identity, gender, and journalism in the Middle East. How hard is it to cover the Middle East as a woman? Well, I, I cover a very small part of the Middle East, but of course I live in an Arab society and patriarchal society, very patriarchal. My friends, of course, my women friends are feminists and they are working and struggling in their own society here in the West Bank and also in Gaza for uh, 
not just for rights, but for changing the image of women, uh, acting against patriarchal traditions. It is not easy. You see it in laws. I mean, some laws have been changed thanks to those struggles of women. Uh, I don't know all the laws, but you also feel that the layers of traditional um, scolding or looking down at women in many places. Uh, I think it's not only common to Palestinians. I mean, we face it also in Israel, in certain societies in Israel and in workplaces. So it's not just unique. But here, the patriarchy is very strong. And uh, here is exactly where I feel I'm less involved because, it, after all, it is not my society. So I'm interested to hear from my friends about their struggles. And, of course, I have my sympathies. But when I have the opportunity to uh, report, I report about the struggles and the attitudes and the discussions, internal discussions on these issues. Amira Haas is the Occupied Territories correspondent for Haaretz. She is going to be in the Midwest starting on Sunday, April 28th at the Oak Park Public Library. On Monday the 29th, she'll be at the Evanston Public Library. Then she'll be back in town on May 3rd and be in Bridgeview on the 9th. She's going to be at the LaGrange Public Library. So uh, it's a great time to meet and hear Amira Haas, Occupied Territories correspondent for Haaretz in Chicago. Thanks for joining me, Amira Haas. Thank you. And if you're looking to sort out where Amira Haas is in Chicago, you could go to the website of the Committee for a Just Peace in Israel and Palestine, which is sponsoring her tour. The website is cjpip.org, cjpip.org. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have Weekend Passport, and we're going to talk about a children's-oriented Weekend Passport, how to have your children have an international good time. We'll talk about an African folk tale and combined with hunger issues here in Chicago. It's a new play that combines African folk tales and hunger issues. We will hear about it tomorrow on Weekend Passport. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.